Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter number 8. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 11. If in about 10 minutes that air is still on, somebody can run it up one degree or something so we don't want anybody frozen out on us in here today. Otherwise, if you go to the thermostat and nobody tackles you, then you're fine. You're fine. All right, Romans 8, beginning with verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Come on, let's sing this song of prayer. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving. I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Amen, amen. Now previously we investigated the operations of the law of sin in the believer's life. We focused on verses 1 through 3. I explained to you what happens when a man or woman is born again. We hear the gospel. The Spirit of God brings conviction to our hearts. And with that conviction, God provides the ability to repent. And where repentance occurs... A new life begins. God reaches down into the breasts of that human and figuratively squeezes that heart and imparts to that heart new desires, new impulses, new appetites. It's for this reason that when a man or woman is born again, everything changes. You desire different things things. And when a person has gone through that change, there's a euphoria or excitement connected with knowing that all of our sins have been washed away. Nevertheless, there's the residue of a nature of sin in a Christian. And Paul refers to it as the law of sin. 
This is what makes it possible for you to be tempted. If you didn't have a sin nature or a law of sin at work in you, he would not be able to harass you with the intent of causing you to yield in temptation. But with every temptation, as the Bible teaches, there is an exit sign for the believer. You can yield to temptation, which is sin, or you can say no. The choices are in front of the believer. Paul continued by noting for us that there are various manifestations that are linked to this old nature. Before you became a Christian, what we call your B.C. days, your old nature fully expressed itself through attitudes and addictions and habits. But the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior, that old nature was then crucified with Christ so that now it's Jesus living through you. And you've got to do what you can to make sure that old man remains crucified because if he ever comes down off of that cross, what you were, you'll become again. And we explained to you that when people backslide, they typically revert to the conditions or habits that they lived with before they were saved. If you had a foul mouth before you became a Christian, you backslide away from God. That foul language would come back and be normal again. If you were an alcoholic before you became a Christian and you loved the bottle, I can promise you, you walk away from God. Your hands will be gripping another bottle again. If you were the kind of person that had excessive anger, were just always depressed or melancholy, but you found your joy in the Lord, if you backslide away from God, that will become the norm in your life again. Now, as a pastor, we've seen plenty of people walk with God for a season and then turn and move away. And there are many things that lead to people backsliding. I recall some years ago, even when we began this fellowship, we had a gentleman who used to help me in sharing the Word of God. God had redeemed him out of a terrible lifestyle, brought him and his wife out of terrible conditions, all kinds of sins, and the grace of God was magnanimous toward him. He had untold numbers of sins forgiven. But he got offended one time with individuals in the church and slowly removed himself from the congregation, slowly backslid away from the king, moved back to the area where he was from, and in the midst of that, returned to a lifestyle that was opposed to God. Had a heart attack and died. Whatever you were before you became a Christian, you walk away from God, that's going to be part of your life again. Now Paul says here in verses 6 and 7, to be carnally minded is death. His experiences and his observations and this revelation from God further reveal that the mind of the believer is like a garden that has to be cultivated. Your mind. The garden, of course, is labor-intensive. 
requires a lot of time. It requires a lot of energy, and depending on what, it, what you're planting can require a little bit of money. But with gardening, unlike in Arizona or in Florida, we've got a shorter season of production here because we have four seasons, fall and the winter included. But you know that once you plant a garden, you have to be out there constantly working it because weeds grow with or without moisture. You don't have to pray for weeds. They're going to be there all the time no matter what. You plant a field, and if you're not over there turning, turning over that soil, you plant your yard and you've got beautiful grass out there, them weeds are next door in the neighbor's yard staring at your yard or your field saying, if you just give me a little bit of time, me and all of my siblings will be over there in your field. But if you tend to what you have, then you'll be able to handle some of the weeds that break out. So it takes time then plant a garden, cultivate the garden, nurture what's going to grow in that garden. It requires your daily attention. Now, this is why as Christians we have to meditate on God's Word in order to have good success because the mind is a seedbed, and it too requires daily attention. And as we know from Scripture, Things can become weed seed in thought form and then take root in your heart and then start manifesting in your life. We're all familiar with the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And, and you remember he, he was around the house and was a little unhappy with the restrictions. He was unhappy with the lifestyle. And while he was working there on his farm or ranch or acreage or whatever, his thoughts began to roam far and wide. And as he began to dream about what life must be like out from under the, the confines of mom and dad's existence, then pretty soon he goes to his father and he says, Now, Dad, look, I've been around here long enough. I'm ready to go, and the inheritance you're going to give me when you die, I want you to give it to me while you're alive, and I'm going out there and do what I want to do, and I'm going to live it up. And you know, you, you, you fathers in here, just like that father in the Bible, you would have just started dividing everything up. My father would have laughed at me if I would have said that to him. Well, the young man received his portion. Went as far as he could away from home, and out there the Bible says he wasted the substance of his life and inheritance with riotous living. What is that? That's a lifestyle that's not subject to any law. That's a lifestyle that's not answerable to any man. That's a lifestyle that says, I can do what I want to do, and you cannot tell me what I'm doing is wrong. And plenty of children have been raised in the house of God and couldn't wait to escape to get to college. And when they get to college, they don't even tell anybody they were raised in church. They don't want anybody to know that mama's a preacher or that daddy was a deacon. They don't want anybody to know that, that grandpa laid the foundation of a church because in their minds they dreamed of getting away from all of that. And those seeds have now produced a harvest of rebellion in a lifestyle. 
Well, the, the culture of growth that is necessary for harvest requires that you pay attention to soil and seed and climate and moisture. Likewise, your thoughts. When thoughts get in your head, if you create for them an environment that allows them to thrive, then they'll spring up in acts and in deeds. And as the devil comes to plant seeds in your mind, you've got to resist that. He wants your mind to be carnal. That means worldly. He wants your mind to be carnal. That means ungodly. He wants your mind to be carnal. That means opposed to the things of God. And he works at it. If there's an atmosphere in which those seeds can develop in your mind, then you're going to have a harvest of rebellion in your life, a harvest of rebellion in your home, a harvest of rebellion in your marriage. So here's what Paul says in Philippians 4 and 8. Think on things that are pure. Think on things that are lovely. Think on things that are virtuous. i give an example. If, if you sit around and think about the various people who have angered you in your life, I can promise you you'll get a harvest of bitterness in your heart. And it will manifest eventually through your speech. If you spend your time thinking about who wronged you or mistreated you, well, they never understood me. And nobody ever cared about me. I, I was sick and nobody ever called me. I had a baby. Nobody ever brought me a meal. You know, all, all of that kind of stuff. If you, if you let that stuff just kind of roam around in the thoughts of your head and you meditate on that, your harvest will be one of bitterness. Undoubtedly, it'll be one of bitterness. Many relationships have been broken because of thoughts. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If you're bitter, you're thinking about bitterness. I told you before that, that scientists have said, I don't know that this is true. This is what they've said. I'm not going to try it out, so you don't need to ask me a year from now. But scientists have said, if you take some garlic and, and you begin to chew on garlic over a period of time, if you don't have an appetite for garlic, you'll develop a taste for garlic. And there are some people, they feed and thrive on gossip and slander, and accusation. Some people are, are paranoid with that. I mean, every day of their life, they're imagining their spouse is stepping out on them. They're, they're dreaming that, that their children are in a tragedy or something terrible is taking place. That mind has become a seedbed producing a harvest that's not fruitful in the things of God. Got to be careful. Yeah. Now, anybody who takes the time to look into Romans 8 and verses 6 and 7, then you can see, particularly with verse 7, there's a threefold issue here. The carnal mind, it elicits death. The carnal mind is hostile towards God, and it's not subject to or answerable to the law of God. And a person with a carnal mind is not interested at all in godliness. They'll get angry with you. They'll bristle at the idea that, that you would dare quote the scripture in their face. I mean, after all, this is a book, you know, thousands of years 
Oh, how dare you try to tell me I should conform my life to a book like that. See, that carnal mind doesn't want to be restricted in its behavior. It wants total freedom. It wants anarchy. Well, this kind of a person definitely is on an emotional roller coaster. I mean, they're having Blue Mondays. Tuesday, they're fine. Wednesday, they're upset. By Thursday, they're shouting and praising God is good Friday. They're ready to backslide. The world's coming apart. By Saturday, they're thinking, oh, my goodness, I think things are getting better. But Sunday morning looks worse than it did yesterday evening. That person is emotionally disturbed and lawless because they won't bring their life under the restrictions of the Word of God. And anyone who is offended easily is disturbed, offended easily. Because they're not dead to words and things like that. You've got to walk around on eggshells with certain people. You ever met folks like that? You've got to be very careful what you say. Because birthday time, you know, if you say happy birthday, it may be a time they get upset because they don't want to, they don't like the fact they're turning 47. Or, or it's somebody who's easily offended about this. You've got to be care- very careful about asking about somebody's child because they get offended with you asking about how their children are doing. Easily offended. That's a carnal mind. If you have to walk on eggshells around certain people, these people are carnal. Touchy people are carnal people. Very carnal. Because that mind is not controlled by Scripture, and prisons are full of touchy people. They're easily annoyed. Somebody called somebody's mother a name, so they pulled a gun out and shot them. Somebody called somebody's spouse a name or accidentally bumped into their child and didn't say, I'm sorry, and pulled a knife out and stuck somebody. They're in prison because they're easily annoyed. These kinds of activities prove that a person can be carnal. And as a Christian, Paul's working on that. A carnal mind is enmity. It's hostile towards God. And you bring Scripture into it. They say, how dare you? Don't you know who I am? I've got a right to live my own life. I'm an adult. I can do whatever it is that that I want to do. And so in this world that we're living in today, we see that the carnal mind is governing so much what we see in our culture and in society. We've got old and young people charmed by the world. Now, some of you will remember this. Back in the 80s, there was a popular group, and they were a rock and roll band called Poison. And here, this band, all of these men putting on makeup, and I mean, they've got hair that's 19 different colors, and I mean, they just, I mean, they've got all of the the sensuality of of a lady. I can remember being in school when they started busing, and they, the blacks, we lived on the east side of Cleveland. The whites lived on the west side of Cleveland. They switched it up so we all had to be together. And I'll never get walking through the hallways just looking at some of these people and what kind of creatures are these? We've got men with makeup on. But this was the same time where Michael Jackson in the thriller 
was popular, and Prince was a very popular singer. And, and in the black community, you had all these teenagers coming to school with these studded jackets, wanting to look like Michael Jackson and had their hair all like his in the perm and the jerry curl, and, and guys wearing eyeliner. I said, what kind of a world is this with boys wearing eyeliner? But if you think about it, from that period of time to where we are now, although they were fascinated by the world and charmed by all of that, you can see where the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes caught hold to young people's hearts. You see it sometimes with what posters teenagers put on their walls. You can see what they're attracted to. And pretty soon what they're attracted to, they allow themselves to be transformed into. And that carnal mind looks at that and says, that's exactly what I want. That carnal mind says, I'll transform your life so that you can be just like that person there. And from eyeliners on the eyes of young men and makeup on the, on the faces of young men, it's only a half-step leap in the darkness into a world where transsexuality becomes the norm. This is why Tommy can be called Tandra, and nobody says a thing about it. It's a carnal mind. The carnal mind governs it. So for us as Christians, we pay attention to verse number, verse number 6 that says to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Life and peace. We have to find our identity in Christ. Did Jesus pursue the culture of the Greco-Romans? No. Did Jesus promote and popularize it? No. He wasn't at the theaters. He didn't condemn it. He wasn't at the arenas for all the sports things. He didn't condemn it. He gave his life to the pursuit of God and the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And the question people often try to ask when trying to determine if something is right or wrong, they'll say, well, what would Jesus do? Wrong question. You've got four Gospels with a record of his deeds and his speeches. It's not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? What did he do? And when you look in the book, you can see how he acted, how he interacted with people. Yes, he did go around sinners, but he didn't dress like them, become like them to win them. He stayed and remained as he was. He said to Nicodemus, except you're born again, you cannot even see or enter the kingdom of God. He's saying to Nicodemus, I know you have the equivalent of a doctorate degree as a Pharisee. I know you're an upstanding citizen and esteemed in your community, but you're as lost as a man without a covenant with God. And Nicodemus didn't even know it. He had no idea he was on the outside of the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, unless you become like I am, it's not me becoming like you are. I travel and walk through the airports, and I'm telling you, it's like being at a museum or in a zoo, just watching the people walking by. I mean, here's a lovely young lady, attractive, beautiful. But, I mean, she's got hair going in every direction you can think of. She's got black lipstick on and all kinds of stuff going on. Here's a young man walking next to her. You know if Jesus ever got hold to his life, that handsome face would come into visibility. But, I mean, he's got 19 earrings in his ear. 
He's got them in his nose, in his lips, one in his tongue, they're in his eyebrow. He's doing everything he can to obscure the beauty that God provided when he fearfully and wonderfully made them. But the carnal mind comes to bring confusion to young people and older people so that once the confusion comes, we don't know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And that's why our little boys want to act like little girls and our little girls want to act like little boys. But we have to find our identity in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, the first three verses say, Set your affections on things above. See? If you put your affections at the right hand of the Father where Christ is seated, you'll find the pattern, everything God wants for you. Yeah, the pattern. The believer's life is supposed to be regulated by the Spirit of life, and the Holy Ghost will not foster in you any tendencies that remove from you the liberties. Christ won at the cross at the empty tomb, or at his Father's throne. And when I talk with anybody and they're explaining to me about how something that is ungodly is actually of God, and God is the one working to help with that, I say, oh, that's a carnal mind. Not too long ago, in a church not too far from here, had a young man who spoke in a church talking about the whole issue, homosexuality, but told in young people, if you're born gay, God can change you. Well, that, that thinking is across the body of Christ in many places today. If you're born gay, now think about that. If you're born that way, they're saying it's, it's in the DNA. They're saying that in the seed that comes from the, the mom and pops when they come together in copulation, that in the seed there can be something that causes one gender to love a person of a similar gender, but yet God condemns it throughout the Scripture. So what then if somebody comes to your house, burns it down to the ground, and then go to court, and they get up in that witness stand and they testify, I could not help myself. I was born to be a fire starter. It's just something about matches. I just can't help myself. You know, the Bible condemns thievery, but you're not born a thief. You're not born a thief. You come into this world, you have original sin, but you're innocent of that original sin as a baby. But these things have to be dealt with and taught to folks. So the tendencies that very often come to people later in life don't come because of the seed of God. The Scripture says we're born again of incorruptible seed. And even if someone did believe that, if there was bad seed in the natural birth, I'm telling there's perfect seed in the spiritual birth. He changes a life. You cannot live a life contrary to the Bible, call it scriptural, and say this is of God. Now, Romans chapter 7, verse 22 gives it this way. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That's Paul. Here's a man that's saved. He knows what it's like to be unsaved and, and religious, but yet verse 22, I delight. That's my happiness. That's my joy. He's not excited about crocheting. 
video games, bowling, house cleaning, or bird watching, none of which are sinful. But Scripture alone is what excites that new nature. You become born again. You become a new creature in Christ. There's a new nature that comes alive in you. And the only thing that makes that new nature happy is the Word of God. That's it. Not an amusement park, not a radio program, but the Word of God. That's it. He's designed that way. And the less time that you give to feeding the law of God to the inward man is more time that you give to increasing the old man's strength. How many times have you heard people say, oh, I just can't control myself. The devil made me do it. What the devil? You just kept feeding that old man to the point that that old nature got strong enough to overpower you and you couldn't resist it. That's what happened. Not a devil. It's you. It's our tendencies to feed this old man. You've got to starve him to death and keep him up on the cross, crucified, as Paul says, put to death the mortal deeds of your body. So the flesh very often drives us into the forbidden territories of trespass, but we have to understand that that inward man is chasing after that word. He wants the word. He's interested in the word. Now, Colossians 3 and 10 tells us the new man is renewed in knowledge and is made in the image of him that created him. So by nature, the inward man is not prejudiced, it's not quarrelsome, but ruled by peace. When your children came into this world and you looked through that little glass and you saw that little baby, you said, oh, my goodness. God just made the cutest baby to ever enter planet Earth. And, I mean, you were so excited. Hold that little kid. But do you realize in, in holding that baby that that baby is innocent in his or her behavior at that stage, doesn't even know the difference between right and wrong. And even as a toddler, still doesn't know the difference, just reaching out, grabbing for stuff. That's why when you're holding it, that little baby reaches out, grabs your beard, and you go to yelling, and it doesn't know that that's hurting. It just keeps pulling little baby doesn't know until you tell it. But that infant being innocent of the behavior has to be taught certain things. So I told you that that new man made in the image of God is like God. Babies aren't prejudiced. They aren't racist when they come into this world. They have to be instructed in that. You have to take a toddler and raise it with neo-Nazi views him or her to come to believe that only our race, the white race, is the best race. You have to take a baby and raise it in the nation of Islam in order for it to come to believe that, that blacks are superior and that all whites have the devil in their skin. Children have to be instructed in that. And this is why in this carnal culture today, the people who believe in so much sexual deviance want the children to learn about it in elementary school. They know the sooner you introduce that, the earlier it will be normalized because a baby will embrace whatever its guardian tells him or her because of the relationship. If you say it's okay, then it must be okay. If you're doing this around me, then it must be okay. 
in the world understands that. A carnal mind understands that. This is why in the state of Vermont, of all the states in the Union, they're the one state that's a safe haven for people that molest children. And they promote it. They popularize. They want the nation to know if you're involved with that behavior and you go to jail and you get out, you come to our state, this is a good place for you to be. See? Yeah. So that kind of deviance is the result of a carnal mind, but the new man, the new nature in you, will reject what a carnal mind fully embraces. So you see people on television. I mean, they're telling you all the joys of living in sin. There's nothing wrong with it. You shouldn't have your life determined by what the Bible teaches, and yet there's something inside of you as a Christian that lets you know that's not right. That's a sin. And we shouldn't change and try to modify how we describe it. But, but that culture is doing what it can to change things because that carnal mind has become their God. Yeah, they satisfy its cravings. They adore it. And that carnal mind is seated high and lifted up in the lives of many people. How can I increase the carnality of the world? Yeah, that trip out to California last week, I was so unhappy with what I saw. Just, I mean, here, here are adults that got books, cartoon books, and six- and seven-year-olds performing oral procedures on one another in a wicked way. How, how, how in the world does that get into a school system? There's a carnal mind that governs the people that lead it. And when you hear people defending it, whether they've seen it or not, but standing in defense of it. I'm telling you, that's a posture that is hostile to the things of God. It's not subject to the law of God. And the more you talk, the angrier they get. How dare you talk to me about a Bible? Well, Psalm 1611 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life in his presence, his fullness of joy. At his right hand of pleasures forevermore. That's Psalm 16 and 11. Carnally minded people are not excited about God. And for this reason, you have to have theatrics and circus acts just to attract them and keep them. That's why that television of yours, when you watch a commercial or some kind of program, they got them colors changing and flashing just, just every half split second because they, they want to keep your attention. They're not going to keep your attention with just some little droll type of a scene. They've got to have all kind of flashy characters and colors because that appeals to the eye. They test this stuff out on the public. And so I listen to people in, our, in traveling and in going to different conferences. I've sat through a whole lot of conferences on how to reach young people, how to grow but church, for 20 years I've heard and seen commercials on attracting the youth, but in all of our travels, when Tiff and I go here or go there, we're surrounded by young people that love God. I mean, we'll see young people want to be preachers. They're sitting on the front row the whole time that I'm preaching. Service is over. They want to keep us up to 11 o'clock at night just asking stories about our travels and about the move of God because they're hungry for God. What kind of attraction? Are we looking for? If you give away bicycles, you'll have a line of people going down the alley. You ever run out of bicycles, you'll run out of the people that come for the bicycles. That's, that's what it is, the theatrics and the, the, the circus acts that have to be in a church. 
The carnal mind is not excited by God. It's not interested in God. And we need to know the difference between what's right and what's wrong. I go into a church, I'll worship God any way that I need to worship God. Go in some service in, in the Middle East and Israel, the way them people dance over there, they just lock arms and they just kind of kick and, and that and just dance around in a circle. And you know me, I get right in the middle of it and I kick and I dance and praise God. If I'm at home and I'm in one of the churches that a friend of mine, my pastor, they get to playing that really upbeat music, then I mean I'm dancing and shouting just like they dance and shout. If I go somewhere and they're listening to the Gaithers, and the Southern Gospel, just like the older people, I sit there and stomp my feet and clap, you know, because they don't have to use a whole lot of energy, just shake a leg and they're feeling good. Yeah, I just get right in, shake a leg, have fun, get with the young adults down at the Kansas church or, or at another church. And I mean, they'll have them bands up there. They're playing all kinds of songs about graves and the gardens and all of this and people jumping around. And all of them bouncing around and acting like I've got a pogo stick too. I get right up in there and I'm jumping up and down. But I've got enough sense to know that the movement and the response and reaction of my body is not a manifestation of the spirit. It's just a reaction to the rhythm and the beat of the music. And if you know the difference, you know what's carnal and what's spiritual. Some people honestly believe, oh, it's a, it's a powerful meeting if we've got smoke machines and it's dark and all the lights are on the stage and it's dark on the crowd. No, you just got a secular concert with Christian people. That's all. I've been in churches before. They put me up on that platform. I'm looking out there in the crowd. I can't see anybody four feet in front of me because it's so dark out there, and they have the lights on me. And I said, well, can somebody turn the lights on in here, please, so I can see the people I'm preaching to? I do that in our church in Kansas. In the beginning, when they wanted it dark like that, I said, no, in the beginning. God made light. Turn the light on. Deeds of men were bad because they loved darkness. Oh, no. I said, turn them lights on. We can see. You turn them lights down, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen to every man over the age of 45 or every man who's got an eight-hour job. And then right at the altar call time, they'll stand up and say, I'm telling you, that was one good message, Pastor. <laughs> Slept through it all. No, turn them lights on so I can see see people's faces. If you announced that there was a Christian concert in a, in a particular church and it was a popular group, I guarantee there'd be a line a half mile long with people standing out there hours before to be there. But in that same church, you said, we're going to have a prayer meeting. There's going to be nobody there but us and Jesus. They'd be scarce as hen's teeth in that place. Because flesh does not want to pray, but flesh does like beats and rhythm and music and want to have its cravings satisfied. In this world that we live in right now, we have to know the difference between what's right and what's wrong. You know? I preached on the East Coast one time, gave the altar call, and uh, here comes somebody down there for prayer, and I'm trying to remember the person's name. When I looked at him, I thought for sure I'm dealing with a woman because I've got all kinds of makeup on and 
where the hair is all done up. Get ready to pray for that person, then out of that voice comes a out of that mouth comes a woman's voice. And here's a man dressed up like a woman, wants to be a woman, but that word that I preached so pierced that heart that now they're coming down because they want to get right with God. And and the person was weeping and crying, and in just a few moments I watched as God changed that life, changed that life. See, one, one message can cut through all of that. You, you're not going to change a life like that by simply telling them, well, look, God appreciates you the way you are. No, God wants you to come to him, and God appreciates you responding to his word and repenting of your sins and your life conforming to that repentant life. It's not you, you, you doing your own thing and then you telling God how you're going to live and making yourself acceptable to God. We're not acceptable to God in and of ourselves. The only thing that pleases God is his son, and we have to be in his son. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He would never said that about you or me has to be Christ. So millions of Christians then spend their lives trying to get God to approve of something he disapproves of. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, verse number 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. In Romans 8 and 8, it says they that are in the flesh cannot please God. The ability is not there. The capacity is not there. If you're in the flesh, you can't please him. But as I said, people are working hard to bring into the favor of God the things that God is displeased with. That is to say, if we can improve our descriptions of carnal acts, then maybe they'll be more acceptable to people and to God. If we can just change the way we talk about it, see, the language that we use, then the perceived negative aspects of it will be done away with. Years ago, there was a disease they used to call the gay-related immune deficiency. See? It was GRID, what they called it. Then people came up with the idea, well, that's too, that singles out a class of people too much. We need to come up with a different name. So they came up with AIDS, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. If you look at all the different acronyms that we have for the different people, I'm talking about the whole AIDS, you know, LGBTP, SUQ, you know, that whole, that whole community. All of those, those letters are designed to keep you from thinking about the actual word that the letter represents. So they shorten it and abbreviate it so that you'll see one particular class of, of people whose ideas, although they may be different from yours, their lifestyle should not be labeled in a bad way. And that is why your TV programs and your plays prevent, they present perverse characters in sympathetic scenes. The whole idea is to provoke sympathy from you so that you will look at these characters and take a compassionate stance and not believe that that behavior is wrong. So they take the viewer and they take the character and disassociate any sense of stigma or shame from the character and their acts so that the believer or viewer will see it and say it's not so bad after all. That's the whole point. That's why they make the dads look goofy in many sitcoms. And that's why they make the Christians seem super narrow-minded and ignorant. And then the lesbian or the homosexual man, he's, he's just the most easily, you know, got the best listening ear and so easygoing. 
The whole idea is to take the whole system, turn it upside down. They're not trying to preserve biblical values, but promote evil and change the idea of what a family value is. That's what they're doing. And slowly but surely, you can see it. The change of the language. So in Nebraska, in our court system, I mean, this, this is already in uh, application. You can't refer to a person as a criminal. You refer to them as a justice-involved individual. See? Don't use that language as a criminal. This is why the, the, the psychiatrists and, and politicians are doing what they can to change the language in, in, in literature so that you don't use the word pedophile. The stigma is too bad. So we say minor, attracted people. The whole point is to change how people perceive something. So in truth, people are easily duped, even though God's mind has never changed. The carnal mind is crafty, folks. It's looking for ways to bring you into a state of deception and bondage, and the best that we can do to wrestle with that carnal mind is have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. And the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has come to bring into all of us that triune Godhead so that we could be a habitation of holiness and live for God. That same Holy Ghost that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible says, quickens our mortal bodies. He comes to bring life in every aspect of your life. So what can he do with our minds? He can change it. Yeah, he can change it. Don't, don't be deceived out here, folks. Keep your mind fixed on God's Word. Don't allow the adversaries to change you, but trust God. All of you young people that are in here, what you need to know about God is very clear, and that is that God wants you to serve Him, but He also wants you to know the difference between right and wrong. You say, Pastor, what about when I'm in class and if I have a, a teacher or if I'm in college and I have an instructor that says something that's contrary to the book? Stay with the book. Stay with the book. Yeah. Some of the stuff that I see that they're teaching these kids in elementary school, I, I still to this day cannot understand why parents aren't in the parking lot leaning up on the, on, the, on the cars of the teachers trying to figure out what in the world is going on when these teachers come out of that classroom. Because I know if I would have ever had to deal with some of the stuff these kids had to deal with, my dad would have met somebody in the parking lot and would have had a conversation with somebody. But we have so degraded the senses of our young people that they don't know the difference. But, folks, that's why we're here, to hold fast to the Word of God. And even if we have segments of society and segments of our family that hold views, views that are contrary to the book, you make sure you get God's views inside the heads of those young people. So we'll finish out this morning by praying for the youth that are here today. We want to get the adults to lay hands on them and pray for the little ones because I'm telling you, folks, the way to keep young people is by praying for them. Keep them seeking the face of God. We can't spend our lives just cursing the darkness. We've got to turn the light on. And then shine it in their faces. Shine it in their faces. So sugar, find us a song or somebody. You guys can play a song if you want. But, but let's all stand right now. Let's all stand. And if, if, if you're 16 or under, 
I'm going to ask you to come down here because we're going to pray for you.